Good afternoon, evening, morning, lunchtime, happy hour, whatever time it is, wherever you're listening to this. This is your host, Anudra Stogie, and welcome to Awoken Word. Not much for housekeeping today other than to say it's been a continued year of travel, which I'm privileged and very fortunate to be able to say. And along these travels, I've met some pretty interesting people. I'm looking forward to sharing today's conversation with you because it's a little bit of a testament to the impact you can have on someone as a child and how things sometimes come full circle as they grow up. Today, I'm sharing my conversation with Sangeeta Patel. Sangeeta is the CEO of LeVar Burton Kids, which was formerly Reading Rainbow. Now, I'm pretty sure most of you have heard of Reading Rainbow, and like myself, many of you probably grew up on it. I have to say, uh, the impact that show and that LeVar Burton had on my early life, and I'm sure on millions of others, is not insignificant. There's a lot happening in the world today, as there always has been, and I was happy that we got to cover as much ground as we did. We talk a little bit about the journey of Reading Rainbow, which is now LeVar Burton Kids, and the impact that that's had on Sangeeta's life, but also the impact that she's been able to have in working very closely with LeVar. Can I call him LeVar? I don't know. Maybe should I call him Mr. Burton? I don't know how this stuff's supposed to work. I I don't know if LeVar and I are really on a first-name basis yet. Anyways... We also talk a fair bit about the experience of race in America, but also from the unique vantage point that Sangeeta has. We talk about the education system and potentially reforming it, what's working, what's not. We also dive into how we need to be able to learn to work and learn to learn in a changing world. And on the topic of learning, which is a big theme throughout this conversation, we both agree that we have a tremendous amount to learn from kids, perhaps more to learn from them than they have to learn from us. So perhaps we should just get out of the way. We also talk about something that's fairly close to home for both of us, and that is representation and diversity in the context of children's books and film and media, and just why it's so important that kids see themselves and different faces and different kinds of families and different kinds of societies and cultures reflected in the things that they read and watch. Please forgive my voice. There's a few points where it kind of breaks. I was either going through puberty again or wrestling with a bit of a cold at that particular time. And before we jump into the conversation, I just wanted to send a special shout out to Jeff Pereira and Pradeep Singh Nagra, both of whom have been on Awoken Word. We talk about some of your work and the inspiration that you've brought. And A massive shout-out to Brene Brown, who has been a source of inspiration for millions and millions of people. You definitely have inspired Sangeeta, and you've inspired many others. So if you ever do hear this, just know that your voice and your work has traveled. So, yeah, I'm really happy to present to you now this conversation with the CEO of LeVar Burton Kids, Sangeeta Patel. This podcast is my humble attempt to bring a full grain of sand of goodness to the beach of human experience. Inspiring. This podcast is my love letter to all of you. The Awoken Word 
we are here live in Orange County, California, just outside of Los Angeles, and I'm here with Sangeeta Patel. This is actually quite remarkable that we're here finally talking. We met very briefly at South by Southwest EDU in Austin back in March, and it was an interesting experience for me because I was already going to South by Southwest, and then I found out LeVar Burton is going to be doing a keynote and he's been a childhood hero for me because I grew up watching Reading Rainbow. So the chance to get to see him was amazing. So he was great on his panel. And then after that, I think he had given a shout out to you in the crowd. Mm-hmm. And I came up because, like I'll have to admit, it might sound silly, but I heard him talk about the CEO of his company and it happens to be an Indian woman. I'm like, okay, there's already a story there. <laughs> Something is really interesting about this. So we met, you were really gracious. I was hoping to actually talk to you then, but then I sent a message to the wrong number. So fast forward two months later, here we are in, in, in Orange County. Well, can I, can I mention, by the way, I thought it was really funny because you came up to me and you said, I wanted to schedule an interview for a podcast. And immediately I said, well, I'll have to check with LeVar's schedule. And you said, no, I don't want to interview LeVar. I want to interview you. And I was shocked, to say the least. And I thought, well, wait, nobody ever wants to interview me. They always want to interview LeVar. <laughs> That's really strange, though. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess maybe this kind of comes back to the thing we were talking about just a little bit earlier. But yeah, I, I was actually, I was curious, right? There was enough of, you know, a story there that I was curious to kind of hear more about. What I found really interesting about the experience I had in Austin was just how, how much hope was kind of in that convention center amongst mm-hmm. the group of people that were there. And it was interesting seeing LeVar Burton and looking around the room and seeing the effect that he's had on a lot of people's lives. So I was a little bit of a kid in a candy store because at the end, just in the airport, I check in, uh, get my baggage tag, I turn around, and there's LeVar Burton. And I'm like, holy shit, there he is. (laughs) So I go up, I say hi, and first of all, I can't believe he still looks so fresh. He looks so good. But uh, I mentioned that I was going to be talking to you, and he said, yeah, Sangeeta's got a really great story. I'm like, okay, when the guy whose life has been built on telling really great stories says she's got a really great story, there's something here. Um, I wanted to just kind of start off with who are you? Interestingly, I grew up, I was born in England. I grew up in a small town in Virginia called Clarksville. I laugh because I came from the second largest city in England in Birmingham to this small, small town in southern Virginia. We were the only Indian family. Um, I remember when I went to school, someone said to me, are you black or white? And I said, what? And they go, you have um, hair like a white girl and skin like a black girl. I don't understand, what are you? And it was sort of a pivotal moment where I thought, well, I'm Indian. And they were like, oh. And I was like, no, that's Native American. I'm Indian from India. And they didn't know where that was. Mm. And it was really interesting to me because um, what I realized is it wasn't that they were um, racist or um, they, they were just ignorant, right? right? They'd never met anyone that was different and, and they only knew this world of black and white. And so, you know, they got to know me and, you know, I grew up in this small town and, you know, now when I go home, all right, I, I, my parents still live there, you know, everybody knows Mr. and Mrs. Patel. Everybody knows how, like, like kind and, and nice they are, right? They, mm-hmm. they appreciate them. Um, but when I was there, it's funny, I, I remember thinking, well, this is a world where I have to fit in. I was this little girl with a British accent, and um, you know, I had to kind of learn to 
um, navigate this world where I was very perceived as very different. Right? Mm-hmm. We had you know different food, we had um, different you know language, and so you know it took me a while. It's funny when I was in high school. Um, I remember all the kids, all the black kids would sit on one side of the bleachers and all the white kids would sit on the other side of the bleachers. And I ran for student council president, so I didn't have to sit on either side of the bleachers. I could be the one making the speeches, (laughs) right? So that is, in a nutshell, who I am, right? I've always tried to um, be in this world where I could um, belong and yet fit in, Mm -hmm. right? And... um, I've made choices on um, who I wanted to be. I think I've always tried to stand up for people that can't stand up for themselves. I am all about sort of uh, equality. I really want to help people that just, you know, need it. And um, I I think in general, um, I try to be a good person. And um, I think that's who I am. So you find yourself with a British accent in a world that is completely binary, that's black or white. Mm -hmm. What was your interaction with white kids and black kids? Like, did they interact with you differently? Like, and how did you see yourself in that context? Well, it's interesting. When I first came to Clarksville, it was in the sixth grade. Um, I had, we'd moved around before that, but in the sixth grade, they put me in a class. They didn't know, they didn't have a lot of my history, right? And um, small town, Indian girl, parents took me in and they put me in a, um, you know, they, they have levels, right? They mm-hmm. have the, the college prep sort of levels, a higher level class, a second tier and the third tier, whatever it is. And they put me in the second tier class because, well, you know, I'm this Indian girl with, um, they have no, no understanding of who I am. Mm-hmm. And I think about two months in, they're like, she doesn't belong in this class. She belongs in the level one classes. Like, why is she here? All the teachers kept saying, why, why is she here? She doesn't belong here. She belongs in the higher level. So they put me in the higher level class. And immediately I noticed that the people in my level two classes were very different from the people in my level two, one classes, right? They were almost all white in my level one class. Okay. And there were probably two or three African-Americans at the time in my level one class. Right. And so for me, it wasn't necessarily that black kids and white kids treated me differently. It was that, you know, we were in this uh, level one sort of class where everyone was more educated or, or wanted to learn more. And so um, I really hung out with those kids. It, it seemed to, I don't want to say socioeconomically divided, but it was very, you know, divided by the classes that we were in. I don't think, I mean, I look back at my middle school and high school years in Clarksville, and I'm really proud of the way I kind of handled living there. And I'm proud of the people that were around me because I never, you know, save the first year, um, I was really included in a lot. And I don't think black kids or white kids t- treated me any uh, differently. I just think mm. it was one of those things where, you know, I learned to navigate, right? When right. I was around like black kids, white kids, it just, it was, you just learn to navigate in a different way. Right. Growing up in Canada for me, in, in some ways a, a similar experience, I think, because where I grew up, it wasn't as diverse quite yet. But I find a lot of people from my generation who would be brown or, or, or South Asian or Indian, at least in, in Canada at that time, by the time I was in junior high, a lot of us, I think, gravitated towards hip-hop culture and towards the black community, I think, in the face of a lot of racism that was being directed at us. So almost formed this very loose 
allegiance, as it were, with another group with that a already group. that with a minority group that but that also had a voice in the mainstream. I mean, I'm, I'm a huge lover of hip hop, largely you know for the music, but also because of the the social movement that I ended up creating. So we ended up, I think many people in my generation ended up aligning themselves with with that and then that had its influence in the music and in popular culture and whatnot too. I often was like, you know, I'm neither black nor white yeah. and so there isn't really a frame of reference for me here. That's changed today, but it wasn't the case. Yeah, no, ag- agreed. And But I, I can say that I probably align myself more with the white kids in my class than the black kids in my class. And not because of any other reason except, like I said, the majority of the people that were in my classes were white mm-hmm. and they became my friends. Right. My, my husband jokingly calls me Becky because I know nothing about hip hop. <laughs> okay. um, and, um, you know, uh, I just, I, I, I struggle because um, a lot, like I said, a lot of my friends were white. And so, mm-hmm. I really did kind of gravitate more towards um, that, um, uh, the music, and, the, and, I, and I grew up in England. I mean, my favorite band was Duran Duran. Sure, so, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it, it was a much more um, the, that kind of music. And I, I do uh, realize, though, it's, it's funny, I kind of had my own awakening as to race and, and the world that we live in when I read Malcolm X. And, you know, having worked for um, LeVar and, and understanding that, you know, for example, in the work that I do now, kids' books have such little diversity in them that the it's always been at the forefront of my mind, diversity. It's taken a whole different sort of tone as I've gotten older mm-hmm. because I am learning more and more about, um, about people and the unconscious biases that people have right. that I don't think I realized as a kid, right? I mean, obviously I knew that there's, you know, diversity is an issue. And, you know, I, I, I laugh because when I was um, in San Francisco, I went to this event, um, the Indus Entrepreneurs, it was a Thai event. And um, I took one of my workmates with me and um, she was white and we got there and it was this huge like event. And she was, she looked around and she was visibly uncomfortable for the first 10 minutes. I was like, what's going on? She goes, oh my God, I'm the only person that's not Indian here. Like I'm only the only white person here. And I, I laughed. I go, welcome to my world. Mm -hmm. Like welcome to every board meeting I've pretty much ever been in. Welcome to, you know, most parties I was in in college and high school. This is the world that minorities live in. And it was interesting to me when she said it, it was one of those again pivotal moments where I thought, "Wow, that's that's what it. I know what it feels like." Yeah. And she has never felt this in her right. entire life, and she gets it for one hour. Right. And even then, she's visibly mm-hmm. uncomfortable. Like she's she is physically looking around, like uncomfortable. And and it was it was a really really good moment for both of us. I think she had a lot of learnings in that moment right. as well. Yeah, I think that's actually a great story because um, in, in a previous uh, conversation I had with Jeff Pereira, who you were talking about Brene Brown earlier, Jeff Pereira in, in Toronto is this incredible guy cultivating conversations around masculinity. And we had this interesting conversation about race because he took one of his best friends years ago to a Fuji's concert in Toronto. She gets to this concert and she realizes she's one of maybe two white people in the entire thing. Mm-hmm. And she was uncomfortable there, but they kind of worked through it. So you had a, a whole story around that. I've had experiences with colleagues of mine that were kind of disappointing when I was you know, traveling in, in DC, where all of a sudden you realize they've never been in this situation. Yeah, and now, yeah. but until you actually expose yourself to those situations, you never really know how you're gonna react. Yeah, so it's difficult. 
So let's, uh, I want to come back to the topic of diversity, but I want to kind of get a better understanding of what brought you here today. I mean, you're the CEO of LeVar Burton Kids. Mm-hmm. What's led up to this point? <laughs> I've had a, quite a, um, an interesting path. I, like I said, grew up in Virginia. Uh, I went to Chicago and went to law school there. Um, and then moved uh, to San Francisco for the dot-com boom. Okay. Uh, I worked in a startup in publishing for eight years, then moved to New York City for three years to work at the Wall Street Journal, Dow Jones Ventures, and then um, a company called Libre Digital. It was all digital technology, all startup. And then when I moved to California, I got married in 2010, and I moved to California, and I you know, I really thought, wow, what am I going to do here, right? And um, oddly, one of my... Uh, chief marketing officer for my old company had gone to a conference and just randomly met a woman who um, was looking for someone in digital publishing in California. And uh, they introduced me to her. And she said, you know, we are starting this company. Um, Do you remember reading Rainbow? It was on PBS for 30 years. Of course I do. Do you know who LeVar Burton is? Well, I'm a big Star Trek fan, so of course I do. Mm -hmm. He is looking for someone to head publishing. And I was very excited because I love digital publishing. I love LeVar Burton. Mm-hmm. I was a big Star Trek fan. Funny, when uh, when this started, I ran upstairs after that phone conversation and I pushed my husband, Elaine Style from um, Seinfeld, <laughs> and I said, you are never going to believe who I'm going to be working for. LeVar Burton, Jordy LaForge. And um, my husband almost fell over. And um, Wait, in excitement or because you pushed him so hard? Both. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not that strong. He uh, He was very excited about the fact that I'd be working for Jordy. And fast forward, um, I went from uh, you know, starting this company with him um, as the VP of publishing to um, years later uh, becoming the chief operating officer and then eventually the CEO. We went through quite a journey of bringing this subscription service to kids so that kids could learn to um, uh, appreciate books and reading very similarly to the show and uh, created these video field trips. It was a wonderful journey through kind of really impacting the lives of millions of kids. So mm-hmm. we, in 2014, um, embarked on a Kickstarter campaign to bring this product to schools. Um, it was record-breaking. Yeah, I we, think you raised, what, 5.4 on 6. that? 6.4 at the end wow. of the day. Okay. Uh, 5.4 on Kickstarter, and then Seth MacFarlane gave us another million dollars. So it was okay. a $6.4 million Kickstarter campaign in 30 days. I lo- wait, I, I love that you just dropped Seth MacFarlane, just yeah. you know, kicked <laughs> another million dollars. He did, he okay. did. He was great. He... Uh, he believes in LeVar's mission as well. What's interesting is we were supposed to raise a million dollars in 30 days, I think it was. We raised a million dollars in 11 hours. And uh, by the time I went here and got on my two and a half hour commute each way, by the time I got to work, we'd already hit, you know, like something like a couple hundred thousand dollars. It was great. Wow. And then I became the CEO. We rebranded to LeVar Burton Kids. And um, it's been a wonderful journey. I love LeVar. I love what he stands for. People ask me all the time, well, is he one of those actors that, you know, uh, you know doesn't say hi? And we, what, kind of, what kind of person is he in real life? Because he's such an icon on the screen, mm-hmm. right? Roots, yeah. Star Trek Next mm-hmm. Gen, and um, Reading Rainbow. And I said, the guy that you see on every show that he's been on is the guy he is in real life. People have come up to us wherever we are, and they've been impacted by him. Um, they say, you know, I'm in... I'm an archaeologist because I saw this one episode of Reading Rainbow and he, you know, showed me about digging. I'm a, in publishing because I read every day because of him. You know, one, one guy told me something to the effect of he, he 
thought all black men could read to him when he got to college because his family was so racist that he'd never really he never really knew any other um, wow. African American people until he saw LeVar Burton and then went to college. Um, you know, there's there's so many stories like that, and and he's such a wonderful person. I remember once I was somewhere, and someone wanted to take a picture with him, and the woman hands me her purse and says, "Oh, your assistant couldn't hold my purse." And LeVar stopped her and said, she is not my assistant. She is my chief executive officer. And um, he was so proud, right? And he is this guy that has been surrounded by very strong, powerful women. Mm -hmm. And he loves that. And I think um, uh, I, I have taken so much from that because he, um, he appreciates me um, in uh, so many ways. It's funny you say that because <clears throat> in my only very brief one time that I, I met him in Austin, he was both extremely gracious, super fresh. You know, we took a selfie. I'm not a big, you know, thing on like, you know, I, I see somebody, I want to take a selfie. But like, he is kind of a childhood hero. But he had that same kind of twinkle when I, when I mentioned your name, like, you know, of pride, right? Like, yeah, she is pretty badass. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that that's, uh, that's pretty incredible. I mean, he, I used to watch Reading Rainbow a lot growing up, and he kind of, there's something to be said for reading, but there's something else to be unlocking your imagination, right? And I think kids are naturally, there's no borders in, in our mind. Those parameters get conditioned into us, and watching Reading Rainbow and that experience was kind of one of the few experiences I can remember as a kid where, okay, wait a second, there's an adult actually saying, just keep your mind free. Mm -hmm as opposed to be structured. Yeah, you don't right. have to take my word for it. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, literally his whole thing is, but you don't have to take my word for it. Go find out yourself, go do the research, go be curious. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the thing we want to do is, you know, live in a world where there are curious um, kids who are empathetic and, you know, kind and, you know, want to know inf more information about the world so that they can just be better citizens of it. And that's what we've spent the last 10 years doing, nine years doing, um, and that's what we want to continue to do. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I've, I feel like I've aligned myself with this uh, human, and, and it's a human being that's just um, meant to do bigger and better things. And I laugh now because I think about the fact that I was this, like I said, small town kid who would never have figured this was my journey, right? Mm. From Clarksville, Virginia, to you know, Chicago, to San Francisco, to New York, to here, um, you know, that journey of, of self-doubt all the time, right? This perpetual self-doubt that I've always had about me being good enough for anything. And, you know, I have this person who, you know, has seen the world, who's been very, very successful, and he trusts me to run his business mm -hmm. um, and wants me to be um, a part of his team. Uh, you know, it it's, it's, feels good. You're calling it self-doubt. Is it also just possibly humility? Um, <laughs> I'd love it to just be humility. <laughs> okay. Um, sure. I mean, I'd like to think I'm humble, but I think that you know we've talked about this. There's a lot of um, I'm I'm I have a serious case of imposter syndrome, and like Brene Brown says in her Call to Courage uh, Netflix special, um, you know, it's vulnerable. It feels vulnerable to have to say that, right? But there is there is a I know a lot of women who who struggle with imposter syndrome. You know, I'm constantly in fear of being found out that I'm not as great as I um, other people think I am. And, mm -hmm. and the funniest thing is, it's one of those, it's very interesting because I can't tell you how many times people have come to me and said, you're a badass, or you know, someone said the other day, you're a badass boss lady, um, you're, you're great at this, you know, all the success stories I've had in my life, and yet 
you know, there's this always these negative voices and where um, one of my bosses once gave me a journal and he said, I want you to write down every nice thing someone says about you mm-hmm. in this book because you only hear the negatives and they stick with you and the 10 positives just fly out the window. And um, I looked back after that and it's true. I remember clearly every negative thing that anyone has ever said to me and the positives for some reason have never meant as much. And I have really made a um, conscious effort now over the past year or so to try to remember those really good Mm -hmm. things people have said and look back at my life and my career and look at all the things that I've accomplished and not be humble about them, but own them right, right. and say, this wasn't luck. Like yeah, I'm not just lucky, right? I'm not just a small town kid from Clarksville who ended up, you know, as LeVar Burton CEO. That wasn't luck. That was, I have worked hard for that mm-hmm. and I have made good decisions in my life. And I'm trying to be better about not just um, being humble, but really owning it and saying, you know, be proud of the accomplishments that you've made. We were talking about imposter syndrome, which, I mean, I understand the syndrome. I didn't really understand the label so much until you described it. But I'm sure there's a unique dimension to it for women in, in the way that society holds a different standard and also perhaps just the way that women are more reflective and hesitant maybe before taking a risk, whereas you know, men, if they're 40% qualified for something, will just dive in for it and just see what happens. But I think that imposter syndrome, I think it's something that affects men as well. The difference is, and again, I'm making a sweeping generalization here, but I think men don't necessarily have, we're not raised with all the same tool sets to kind of confront and talk about these things. And it's also, society is changing, it's progressing, but at the same time, for a guy who is, a CEO of anything to go say, I'm not sure about myself, the way that at least he might perceive the world seeing him just coming out and saying that is is different. I don't know that we've been able to kind of come to terms with that vulnerability. Mm-hmm. I think all all people are kind of a lot of us kind of feel like we're you know we're faking it till we make it and we never completely make it. Yeah. But it's interesting. I, I do think that we need to do a better job of letting women know that they're as capable as men that we're all kind of on the same playing field here and to just kind of trust themselves. But I think there's some benefit to having that humility and that, that sort of self-critical evaluation that you have. Yeah, I mean, I, <clears throat> if I could label myself, right, I'd say I'm a lifelong learner. I constantly believe that every person I meet, I'm trying to learn from them because mm-hmm. there's something I don't know and I'd right. love to learn more. Um, you know, every, it's, it's interesting, every job that I've taken... Um, over the last, I probably, you know, when, when LeVar asked me to be chief operating officer and then chief executive officer later, I had to be talked into those jobs, right? I was offered the um, COO role from both founders at the time. And I said, okay, thank you. You know, let me think about it. I'll go home and I'll let you know. And both LeVar and Mark, the founders, were shocked by the fact that I didn't immediately accept I went home, I talked to my husband, and he just stared at me for a solid like five minutes. Are, are, are you serious? You're thinking about it? What is there to think about? And I said, I'm not sure I'm qualified to be chief operating officer. And, you know, I gave him all the reasons, you know, I'm not great at finance and this and that, and, you know, I'm, not, I'm just not sure. And he, he said, you are qualified. Not only are you qualified, but you'll, what you don't know, you will figure out because that's who you are. Mm-hmm. And... And I went and accepted the role. 
Um, fast forward a few years and I did really well in that role and they both LeVar and one of the chief investors said, we want you to take over as interim CEO. And again, this anxiety, <laughs> you know, I'm not sure I can do this. And I'm not a CEO, you know, I like being second in command. I don't want to be first in command. I'm, I'm fine not being CEO. And you know, they both said, we have all the faith in you. We want you to do it. And immediately said, okay, I'll take it, but you have to find another CEO. You have to find the permanent one. You know, I'll, I'll do it in, on an interim basis. And fast forward two and a half years, you know, I was still CEO because I learned to do the job and I learned to do it well. Right. And I think, you know, I, and, and now, um, not to get political, but I always laugh now because I said, well, if Donald Trump, who had a zero experience in politics and zero experience in government, can be the president of this country, then I can do just about anything. So um, yeah. I'm learning to kind of um, have a little more faith in myself to be able to learn things that are outside my comfort zone. Right, right. I think that particularly as the world evolves and changes at a pace that's faster than it ever has been, the things that we know how to do today, the kind of jobs and work that exist today, a lot of it's not going to exist 5, 10, 15, mm -hmm. 20 years from now, right? So if people aren't constantly thinking about how we can evolve and be lifelong learners and just take chances on ourselves, unless we can do that, I don't know how we can be a functioning society given all of the changes kind of happening. Yep. I mean, LeVar always says this. He's like, if you don't take a chance on yourself, no one's going to take it. Why would I take a chance right. on you? Yep. And that's the constant message I have to keep telling myself is that I, I know I can take a chance on myself. Mm -hmm. Because I, I, I always ask people in an interview, what's your superpower, right? Everyone's got one. Right. What's your superpower? And my superpower is that I'm resourceful. I'm solution-driven, right? I will find an answer, and I usually don't take no for an answer. So it's this idea that, you know, when, when employees come to me and say, I can't, I, you know, oh, it can't be done. Like, it, oh, it can be done. Mm -hmm. You just have to find the way to get it done. Right. And um, there, there's a way, right? If this doesn't work, try this. If that doesn't work, try this. If that doesn't work, try this. Um, and I try really hard to uh, instill that same sort of resourcefulness in my nieces because mm -hmm. um, I want them to grow up. Um, in a world where, you know, you're going to fall, get back up, try again. Yep. Don't be afraid to fail. Yeah, and it seems kids are in that way. Like if you give them a, a problem to solve and you put 10 kids in a room trying to solve the same problem, they'll come up with 20 different ways yeah. to do it. Yeah, I think too, certain uh, individual personalities may vary. Some might give up after trying once, some maybe after two or three times, some maybe never. But they're able to kind of think laterally about how to solve the problem and not just put this is the only way to get it done. Yeah. And I find, especially watching my own kids, that they're taking a chance on themselves constantly, but they're not thinking about it as taking a chance on themselves. They're just thinking about, like, I'm trying to figure out how to do this thing, yep. uh, and I want to figure it out. And it, it's really that simple. We add all of these other layers of complexity into our own psyche. <laughs> we do. Of self-doubt and whatnot. I have to ask you this question. Yes. Uh, is it true, the, the rhino who swallowed a storm? Did you, you edited that or you, you worked on that with LeVar? Yeah, so that was, Le the rhino who swallowed a storm was LeVar's first children's book. Um, I, I basically published that book, edited it with both um, LeVar and the other author, Susan Bernardo Schaefer and Courtney Fletcher, who was the illustrator. We worked on that book for a year. Wow. Um, very proud of it. it. It sold out of its initial print run. And uh, Michelle Obama, uh, the first lady, total badass, um, <laughs> actually read um, the book aloud at Fort Leonard um, Wood, I think it's called, uh, in Missouri, um, in front of a room full of 
people, uh, kids. And that was probably one of the professional highlights of my entire life. That's pretty epic. Not very yeah. many people can say that. Yeah, it was, it, hearing the words coming out of her mouth were just, it was breathtaking for me. I, I couldn't believe it. I was sitting there listening to her and I thought, wow, this is incredible. And I, I met her and I told her, thank you so much for this. Um, I'll never forget it. Uh, the Rhino Who Swallowed a Storm also was read in space. It was one of the first books um, to be read by an astronaut in space. Wow, okay. Yeah. The resume of this book is, is, <laughs> is, yeah. is pretty impressive. You know what, it's funny, I find, um, I, I, since having kids in particular and just watching kids, I've always found them fascinating because they're, to varying degrees from kid to kid, they're still in touch with this idea that they create something. Mm -hmm. So if we just pause for a moment, LeVar decided to write this book at a certain period of time. You're on board with this team, editing, working on illustrations and whatnot. You go to publish it, and now all of a sudden, it's being read by the first lady to a bunch of school kids, or it's being read in space. Those moments in orbit in that classroom were essentially the end product of something that you decided to put out there in the world, right? Like you created an experience and a moment and something that touched many different people. And I find that we, somewhere along the way, so many of us lose sight of the fact that we actually create. We think that we're not creative just because we're not necessarily artists or musicians or painters, but every single day in your life, you are creating something. You're creating a moment, an experience, a thought, an idea, yeah. and it, it gets out into the world, right? And it has an effect. Is that something you agree with? Yeah, I, I, it's so funny. I've so many times in my life, I've said this to LeVar as well. I'm not creative. You know, I'm not the creative one. Like you guys figured that out. I'm the business side. I'm not the creative one. And that is so not true, right? It's one of those yeah, things that totally I continued to yeah. say, and I've had to stop myself from saying it and said, that is so not true. You are so creative. It's that I'm creative problem solver. Mm -hmm. um, I'm creative in the sense that I look at the world and I come up with ideas that are, you know, that can impact kids all over. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think we don't give ourselves enough credit for being creative because, you know, I'm not an artist. I can't draw. I can't, you know, I'm, I'm not a musician and I'm not a poet. And so all of those things make me think I'm not creative. And I've had to stop that myself and, and accept that, you know what, you're creative just right. in a different way. I think where it manifests itself in the world that's actually really problematic is the moment we sort of renounce ourselves to being just the consumers of the world and reality as opposed to the creators of it, you're just victim to everything. Yeah. <laughs> so whatever's happening in the economy, I'm a victim of whatever's happening in politics, I'm a victim of like everything is, it's out of your hands, it's out of your control and you almost sort of lose agency when in reality, each and every one of us has that ability to create something. We might not necessarily look at it as creative in the quote-unquote artistic way. But I do believe if we all re-recognize that creativity in us, this world would be a much different place. It wouldn't be the world that it is yeah. becoming right now. I think it's impact, right? And I think it's this idea that we can all, you know, Gandhi says, be the change you wish to see in the world. Mm -hmm. It's that, right? It's that, you know, you can't just sit back and watch the world you have to be a part of making the change that you want to see. And I, it, you know, politics, especially now, right, the world that we're living in now, people are just so um, divided. And it just makes me so sad because I keep thinking, hear, hear each other out, right? Mm -hmm. Just hear each other out. I have friends, um, 
my neighbors actually, who are very different politically than I am, right? In every single solitary way, we are complete opposites, whether it's on topics like abortion or gun control or death penalty or you know Republican versus Democrat and conservative and religion and every which way we are completely different. Yet, you know, my nieces play with their girls. Mm -hmm. um, we love each other to death. I think we respect each other. We listen. We have learned from each other. Right. And I think it's telling because in no way do we agree on a single thing when it comes to politics. And we see each other's posts on Facebook, and I'm sure we want to <laughs> we want to hit the dislike button. But you know, you have to see each other's humanity. Mm -hmm. And I think when I think about change, I want to see, I want to be able to hear them, and right. I want to be able to find a solution that works for both of us. Mm -hmm. And I want to be able to look out and figure out, right, what's my place in the world when I think about this, right, idea that people aren't listening to each other. So I've lived in the South. I've lived in the Northeast. I've lived in the Midwest. I've lived on the West Coast, both North and South. All I've very lived, different. All very different. Yeah. And yet what I've learned in that, in living in all these places is I've never lived in a bubble. I do not live in a bubble. You know, people always talk about there's a bubble of liberal, you know, the liberal bubble and I've never lived in that bubble because I know what it feels like to not have money. I know what it feels like to be different. Mm -hmm. And I also know what it feels like to uh, be successful, right? It, I've lived in all of these different places and lived in all of these different worlds. And the one constant is that people, I believe, are inherently good. Yeah. And that when they meet each other and they hear each other and they don't think about that overall arching like oh facebook and social media and mob mentality when they see each other and and are next to each other and talk to each other that they do understand right, right. i could not have grown up in a place like clarksville with nobody understanding me um, at the beginning and not learned in the in the you know the sixth through twelfth grade that i was there and not taught some of these people who i am and what i stand for and you know they grew and I grew, mm -hmm. and I think that um, you know if we if we were to just stop and all take agency in who we are and what our impact in the world is going to be, then it'd be a better place. Yeah, I think absolutely. it'd be just so much better place. And I want that. Like I welcome that. Right. Mm -hmm. If someone wanted to talk to me about topics like gun control and abortion, and they wanted to hear me, I would talk to them about it, and I would want to hear their opinions, and I would want to talk to them. And I don't think I'm right. I just think I want to live in a world where people are equal and seen as um, important mm -hmm. and valued, right. right? And I think that's the part where when I see, you know, gun control and those kinds of issues, those are my concerns with them, right? That right. you have to value life. You have to value the living. Yeah, and all life. And yeah, yeah, yeah. so, th so th that's what I kind of, uh, you know... Um, whether it's Black Lives Matter, right, and people saying, all lives matter. I get it. All lives do yeah. matter. The point was that Black Lives mattered and because people didn't think they mattered, right? right? So it's, it's those kinds of things that I hear, and I hear my uh, people um, saying them, and then I talk to them about it, and I explain, and I hope they hear me, right? This mm -hmm. idea of privilege, right? This, mm -hmm. this conversation about privilege has been one that I've had so many times with even some of my white friends who have said, you know, but I've had a hard life. Like, of course yeah, you have. Yeah. Privilege has nothing to do with the fact that you've had a hard life. You could have had a hard life, and I appreciate that hard life. 
but you also had the privilege of not having to deal with these other things that people with hard lives deal with. Well, there's, there's a lot there. I find part of the problem today, and maybe this has always been the case, but human beings are complex. But we, at a macro level, keep resorting to reducing everything to a binary, a black or white, a left or right, a right or wrong. And if you actually deconstruct anyone's individual beliefs, they almost never fall entirely in any one of those two dichotomies. They're always more nuanced, they're always more complex. So yes, you could be a tall, muscular, able-bodied white male who has had a really hard life, has seen violence and drugs and you know sexual abuse and all of these different things, and that sucks and that's made your life very difficult. But one thing that hasn't necessarily been a factor is getting pulled over by the police for the color of their skin. Right. So it's not to take away from all of the other struggle, it's just that that one variable is not a factor. Whereas you could also be, you know, all else being equal, you could be a tall, muscular, black man in this country who's coming from a wealthy background, but you do get pulled over by the cop. Mm -hmm. The only different variable there is really the color of the skin. I think we need to evaluate everything through that layer of uh, level of nuance. What I find particularly in America as an outsider, looking at south of the border from Canada and seeing all the craziness that's in the media, but also what's happened in Europe with Brexit, what's happened with a lot of the radicalization of you know almost a right-wing mentality in India and other places in Brazil left and right is almost just a I find is a really bad construct because as soon as you say left and right you're pitting people against each oh, other absolutely you could be progressive on on fiscal matters but you could be very uh, or conservative on, fis- on fiscal matters you could be very liberal in other ways you might not be completely against guns in society. You might only want to ban certain types of guns. That's a nuanced conversation. Mm-hmm. Now. But we want to put people into two camps. tribes, mm-hmm. into two camps, and then watch them fight with each other. And until you actually talk to them and you break bread with them and you spend time, you, your kids are playing together, you're not going to have those conversations. Yeah, it's, it's that, um, that idea that, you know, <laughs> I, la- I, I 100% believe that the disparity in this country between the rich and poor is just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And the problem really isn't, you know, the the best way for uh, the top 0.5% or whatever that number is that's, you know, controlling all this wealth and controlling all of this, um, the power um, has really done an amazing job of splitting Mm -hmm. the country. Absolutely. And they've done, they've done an incredible job of, of trying to tell me and my neighbor how different we are and how, um, you know, it's, it's him or me, right? Yeah. It's, it's, it's not that I don't believe in scarcity. I believe in abundance, yes. right? Like for me, my success doesn't have to mean your failure and your success doesn't have to mean my failure. We can all succeed together and trust me, I'm a capitalist, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not, I don't believe in socialism for, yeah, for us yeah. as American, right? We, we, America isn't a socialist country. With that said, the French revolution, all the revolutions will teach you that at some point it's going to be a cost for us as Americans where that disparity between rich and poor is going to get so big that the people who have nothing will revolt, right? right. They, they need, we have to find this basic middle ground somewhere where the middle class thrives. And in all cultures where the middle class thrives, we all thrive. Right. So 
Yeah, I mean, we'll see how it turns out. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm hoping that. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the, the puppet masters, as it were, don't really want you and your neighbor in this case talking, right? No. And getting to know each other and see each other as human beings, because the more you start to share that common humanity, the less power they can kind of exert over you. And this is not just unique, I think, to the U.S. I think one of the byproducts of globalization, um, politically and economically, is that the tricks of the trade have been globalized oh, too, yeah. right? Like politicians, industrialists are doing the same types of things in, in many different places. Mm -hmm. But I find when it comes to actually talking about what we share that's in common, if we don't realize that we're all in this together, um, whether it's, you know, as far as man-made climate change and the fact that this is the only planet that is within reach that we can actually inhabit, or whether it's just knowing that all of uh, society needs to kind of be functioning, everyone should have meals and, and health care and whatnot. Those don't seem like crazy ideas if you deconstruct them on their own. What I think has happened in America in particular, it's capitalism versus socialism. Yeah. <laughs> I, I get criticized from time to time about this. I don't think capitalism is the problem. The problem is that capitalism is hijacked. What's actually at play in America is not true capitalism. It's not laissez-faire free market. No, it's not. If it was actually that, then market forces would dictate what's actually happening. What's actually happening is you've got industries and lobby groups and whatnot constantly vying for political favor, getting massive subsidies from the government or you know access to contracts and whatnot. And so it's the distortion of free market capitalism and free market economics that allows this sort of, not monopoly, but oligopoly to kind of take hold. Agreed. But that same sort of thing is also happening, I think, politically, because it's kind of crazy to expect 330 million Americans to either think they are Republican or Democrat, mm -hmm. when there's so many other, I, I don't know what the answer to this is, but humans are complex and nuanced, yeah, and we so need to actually come to terms with that as opposed to denying it or forcing ourselves into boxes. Yeah, I try really hard for that reason to learn more um, when I talk to people and not cut them off, right? Not mm -hmm. cut them out of my life. Like so many of my friends are like, oh, that guy on Facebook's so annoying. You should cut him out of your life. And I'm like, well, if I don't hear what he says, yes. then yeah. I don't know what else is out there, right? I don't know what's out there. If I'm not listening to, I, I'm not muting the world that I live in. Mm -hmm. I refuse to mute the world I live in. I need to hear these people because I need to understand what they're thinking. And right. the reason for that is, you know, like I said, I've lived in these places and I know for a fact that if I were dying on the street, my Republican friend would come and save me. Right. And it wouldn't matter that we don't agree on politics because we're human and mm -hmm. it's like embracing humanity among us. And going back to LeVar, that's what we talk about. You know, we talk about the fact that, you know, storytelling is really about embracing um, our collective humanity. Right. I find it really interesting because social media is this whole other layer. We as biological creatures haven't evolved at all in the last 10,000 <laughs> years, right? Like we're essentially the same. We're, we've, been, we've evolved to function best in small groups of 40 or 50 people that we know very well, not having abundance but having scarcity and having to collaborate with each other. And now we're in an era where some of us have nothing and many have too much. And then at the same time, you've got this layer of social media, which is not human in the sense that like, if you have this conversation with your neighbor about any of these issues, he's going to make a point, you're going to make a point, he's going to hear your point, 
you're going to hear his point, and somewhere in there you're going to pick up something from it. And at the same time, you both will realize that your kids are playing together on the side and you're actually human beings who want the best for them. Mm -hmm. But on social media, what happens is I've got this very vicious opinion that's in violent opposition to your opinion, and I've got 100,000 people all saying, yeah, 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 at the same time, mm -hmm. and I'm not seeing your humanity. So we're, we're engaging only like part of our conversation with the person without actually engaging it at any human level. It's kind of strange because we haven't evolved to be able to figure out how to function with each other in that way. I wrestle with it too and I wonder like you know even for for kids in the in the future generation if this is how you're interacting with the world it changes the way you see the world even though it's not actually that way. I don't know if America is as divided as it appears to be when you go online. Mm -hmm. If all of a sudden there was a, a blackout of all digital, all internet and social media and people went back to talking to each other. I don't know that you'd find this place as divided as it appears to be. I agree with that. I agree with that statement. I mean, I, I, <clears throat> I look at kids, right? And they're, they're so incredible. Like at school, they don't notice. They don't know these things. They don't, they're not going around talking about, um, you know, race and and uh, religion and any of those things. They're just, they're, they're seeing each other. They have, they know each other's names. They know what they like. They, they're curious. They want to understand diversity in a different way. Um, you know, and, and that's what I really, that's the impact I want to make on the world. I want to create content um, and work with LeVar on content that helps the next generation be curious, um, empathetic, compassionate, critical thinking, global citizens. Mm -hmm. I want to work with and see kids be able to see themselves in the in the world that's they're reflected in so for example growing up i never saw a single indian on television right no yep. none zero and now you know they see on the red carpet priyanka chopra right mm -hmm. and they think oh there's an indian girl right they see characters that are indian they see someone on the big bang theory they you know they kids can see themselves reflected in the content that's out there and yet, I still think we have a long way to go um, when it comes to kids' content. And so we want to create diverse content where you, know, you, can, you can see different races. You can see people with disabilities. You can see people who are blind. Uh, I was reading a book with my niece the other day about adoption. And I don't think she quite understood adoption, right? Mm. And, and she's like, oh, okay. What does it mean that you know, somebody gave birth to a person? And why would they give the kid away? And, you know, there was a lot of complexity around that. And so that's a diversity issue as well, right? right. It's, it's, okay, this is a, a child isn't with their natural, they're not with their parents who gave birth to them with, their, with the parents that raised them, right? So they, she can be a little Korean girl with parents with red hair. That's fine, right. right? So that's what I want to impact the world with because that's where I know I can make change. So... On the topic of diversity, is there a difference in your mind between diversity and representation? I mean, I know they're just semantics in some cases, but is there a difference? Um, to me, I have really never thought about it. Um, I do, I think they're one and the same to me. I'm sure they're different to some people, but to me, um, you know, diversity and representation, I mean, that's the reason for diversity is so that there can be representation. So for example, I've so many times been in meetings where I'm the only woman, right, right in high-level meetings, and I'm the only minority, mm -hmm. right, or I'm the only woman minority. <laughs> right. And the issue is diversity, but more importantly, the issue is this idea that if I'm not speaking up 
then those people have no representation. And so, I mean, I, I see them as hand in hand. I see that, you know, just like, like I said, Brene Brown says courage and vulnerability, right? I see them as hand in hand. Without diversity, you can't have representation. And without representation, you can't really have diversity. Right. I find with the way that I've seen, at least in the, in the business world, in my own experience, the way diversity is treated is almost a, it's a, it's a novelty. It's a token. So I've seen in past lives with clients saying, no, we need more diversity in this ad. Like if you're creating a, a print ad, for example, and there happens to be like five middle-aged white men, they'll say they want diversity. And what does diversity mean? Okay, we need one black woman, we need one lady in a hijab, we need some guy with a beard who's brown-skinned or, or whatever, and we need one Asian. And so you could put all those people in that ad, and all of those people might actually be assholes. They might share the same sort of toxic view of the world. They might have more in common mentally. <laughs> yeah. But on the outside, they appear different. Wait a second, you're looking at diversity at such a surface level if that's the call that's being made. But I, I'm talking about that in the adult context. Now, if I have to put on the hat of being a child looking at diversity where some of these ideas around thinking and mindset and diversity of thought and whatnot are perhaps a little bit too abstract, but if I'm not even seeing someone that looks like me in this book or someone that's got a funny name like me, mm-hmm. you know, then how do I relate to it? I remember uh, you know, growing up, obviously never seeing, forget seeing any you know, Indian kids or East Asian kids. You would never even see any black faces anywhere in textbooks, nope. on TV, anywhere. And then Hallmark and some of these card stores, you'd go in, they used to have those personalized cards and bookmarks and stuff. I would never find my name there. No. So you can't really find a place for yourself in the world. And the moment you see somebody that even remotely resembles you, it's like almost this little beacon of hope. Wait wait a second, like I exist. And it sounds silly to people who have never had that experience. Mm -hmm. Not to knock anyone named Stephanie. I'm sure all Stephanies are great. But if your name is Stephanie, it's likely that you walked into Hallmark and you found a bookmark with your name, right? Or it's likely you saw a character in a book growing up that looked like you, but that's not the case for everybody. So I'm actually really excited to hear that this is something that you're doing actively. Because even for my own kids, like I want them to not just see brown faces. I want them to see everybody that's represented there because we are all here. It's not like it has to be a forced thing. Like there are black doctors, there are black lawyers, there are black janitors, there's Indian people in sports, in politics, in media, there's Asians doing everything. There's Latinos, like everybody does everything. And so we should be able to see ourselves in that way. Yeah, I mean, diversity for the sake of diversity for adults, there's no rule point to that. I think diversity for kids, just the act of seeing someone, Mm. right, is really important. And, you know, you can put, you know, a few brown faces somewhere, you know, and and I get the idea that, well, that doesn't mean anything. It does to children. To children, The, The idea of even seeing someone that looks like you, reflecting you, is so important because you want to feel like there's a place for you in the world. Mm-hmm. And if you walk around never seeing a brown face in a book or a magazine or a person with a different name, you, you don't understand. Like for us, I think it was a little different growing up because the world wasn't as global as it is now, right? The world is so global now, mm-hmm. it's so interconnected that if you know my niece can't pronounce it a Korean name, or if my um, friend's kid can't pronounce my baby's name, I don't want that, right? right? I want them to know that, you know what, your names are different. They're, they're 
they're, you know, the faces are going to be different. The names are going to be different. I want you to know that, you know, there's going to be, um, you know, an African-American child in your class. There's going to be a Hispanic child in your class. I want you to be able to understand that someone speaks Spanish. I want you to know that bringing rice and beans to, to school for lunch is fine mm-hmm. or bringing bibimbap is great yep. or bringing, you know, something that's, you know, an enchilada or rotli and shak for someone Gujarati is, that's fine. I grew up where your food stinks, mm-hmm. you know, your family's house stinks. It smells like curry, right? That's what people would say. Yeah. And I don't want that for our children. I don't want that for the next generation. And I frankly don't believe that the next generation can survive like that because we are so global in nature that you've got to be able, to, in order to be successful, you've got to understand each other's differences, right? I, I have a friend who lives in Kentucky who I grew up with and I saw her son's um, um, high school, like, picture, prom picture or whatever. And I didn't see a diverse face in the crowd, like nothing. Like they all looked exactly the same. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, are those kids going to have the same experience when they go off to college? Right. Are they going to look around and understand what diversity means? Are they going to feel it? Are they going to be um, open to it? And, you know, th- it, and, and I look at that and I think, I don't want my kids to grow up like that. You know, mm-hmm. I want them to see the world as it is, not as they want it to be potentially. Right, right. right. I want it to see that the world is very diverse and you got to wake up and see it. So. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because I think kids, when they're they're together, they tend to see past a lot of that. Or, yeah. Or even if they recognize it, they recognize it for what it is, but it's not a reason to disagree or feel different. So... I don't know if it's just hardwiring. I, I think my first memory of realizing I was not white was when I was about <laughs> four, five years old. And I remember I was kicking around a soccer ball um, down a few houses. We lived in a small town uh, at that point. It was a small Mormon town. There was one West Indian family, one Indian family, and one Chinese family in this town of 5,000 people. And I was kicking a ball around on this other, I guess he was one of my friends, I can't remember his name, uh, on his front yard. And I remember his mom looked out the door, she yelled at him, she came out, she grabbed him, she picked him up in one arm, the ball in the other arm, she said, you can't play with him, he's not like us. And I, I'm just, I, they just went back in the house. So I'm standing there on the yard and it's, it's one of those vivid memories yeah. from childhood because it was like a sunny evening, it was a nice day and everything. And I remember just kind of like, you know, I'm a kid, just I basically run, I'm like skipping home on the sidewalk. And at one point I just stopped in the sidewalk and I looked out at my hands and my stubby little fingers, like I can still picture it. And I'm like, what's different about me? I don't, like, I'm, I'm thinking, what, I don't get it. Because yeah. we'd never had this conversation no. about race and I'd never been conscious of it but that bubble burst at that point right so now I realize that's true my daughter very quickly like all of her drawings went from everybody being peach to now having all different hues of skin and she identifies names and color and she knows when somebody's from some country or whatnot she's very very aware of it and she's been since she was probably I'd say three and a half four years old but it's not a reason for her not to get to know somebody if anything it becomes another dimension to them which to me is actually just really encouraging. And I hope that more kids get an opportunity to just be exposed to each other. I think they will. I think they will. I mean, they, you know, I, I agree because my niece does the same thing. She has all these hues of colors for painting kids. And, um, you know, when and I grew up, my, my experience was four years or actually like 10 years later than yours, right? In the sense that when I was in, um, 
no, probably not 10 years, probably like six years later, when I was in England, everybody was diverse, right? In mm -hmm. Birmingham, or my entire school was diverse. Right. And I didn't understand what this whole race thing was until I got to Clarksville and realized, wait a second, I'm really different, mm -hmm. really different. And I didn't realize it until people started telling me how different I was, right? In my mind, I was just like everybody else because race would never been an issue when I was a kid. And then I came to the small town and it became a thing. And I'm not saying it became a thing in a negative way. It just became a thing, right? It was right. just something that I had to overcome. And it was just something I had to explain more about, right? It was constantly, and it was so funny. Like I look, you asked me um, um, earlier uh, who my influencers were mm -hmm. and people that have influenced my life. And I always say my mom, because I look back, especially now as an adult, and I think about my mom and my dad. My mom and dad both have a huge influence on me in different ways. I'll tell you about my mom first. My mom came to England when she was, what, 19 years old, 18 or 19 years old, 18. She didn't speak the language at all. She had an eighth grade education. She was married to this man that she had met when she got to England, right? She, mm -hmm. she had an arranged marriage with a photo. Okay. She got to England, she met him. And she had to live with in-laws and other people. And as she grew, she had three children. She worked in a factory. She learned to speak English. She ran a household. She did all of these things. And, you know, I, I, I remember when I was as a little older, I said, Mom, don't wear your nose ring. It's embarrassing. You know, we'd go to weddings and we'd have henna on. I'm like, oh, it's so embarrassing. And I remember thinking, and now as an adult, why was I embarrassed by that? Like, now all that shit's cool. Yeah. All that stuff is yeah. cool. Nose ring, cool. Mendy, cool. Right? And I, and I look back and I'm like, wow, this woman, you know, she did all of these things. She had an eighth grade education and yet she's a math whiz. She's, you know, runs a household. Mm -hmm. She raised three children. She is badass, right? Mm -hmm. and, yep. and, and never, we never felt unloved. We always felt like she was always going to be there for us. My dad, too, my dad grew up in a really hard life, like hard childhood three younger sisters. My dad had um, a mother who died when she, he was young, never really had a lot of money, um, worked so hard, got us to America, worked really hard when we were here. And, and so many times he probably could have given up on life and he didn't right. and because he wanted to raise the, the three of us and, and make us good people. So I look at both of these people and their resilience. Mm -hmm. And that's that what I've learned right from them is you know this idea of never giving up, always finding a way when it comes to all these things, you know, they've always, <laughs> they've been um, on the, on the negative side. They've always been these people who are, um, well, I don't even know if I should say negative, but they've always taught me to be grateful for what I have, right. which I think I've taken, um, you know, gratitude is this thing I live by, right? I don't think I'm, I live in a negative world because I'm so grateful for everything that I own mm -hmm. and everything that I have. And they've taught me that at the same time, the negative part is that, for them, it's good enough. Like, don't rock the boat. Right. right. It's good yeah, enough. Yeah. Like, appreciate what you have. Don't ask for anything more. And that's the thing I've had to learn on my own, right? Which is go for broke, right? Keep going. Um, you know, I was the first person to graduate from college, first person to go to law school. I was like, I, you know, I was like, I was going to, I had to drive myself, right? What's interesting about everything you just said, if you remove the fact that your parents had moved from India to England to here, and, you know, initial challenges with language and whatnot. And you were just, 
from a family that probably struggled early on and then you've gone on to college, get a law degree, move all over the country, become a CEO and everything. That's the American dream. That's is. Th that is the American dream and it just so happens that your story maybe started in a slightly different place, but in the end it's kind of, you know, that journey is pretty much who anyone who hustles and, and works at it, the promise supposedly is that you can uh, achieve all this. And that's actually really quite amazing because I feel like that's part of what's actually being lost right now with the greater polarization, both politically and socially, but also with that rift between the haves and haves nots. That dream isn't necessarily available for everybody. And I think that there's this scarcity mindset that's taking hold it as is. a result. Like there is not enough to go around. Well, no, that's not true. There is more than enough to go around. There there's more than enough to go around the world over if we just manage it properly, right? And yeah. if we just realize that we shouldn't be hoarding with a few, you know, and keeping it from the rest of everybody. But I think that it's really important that we kind of all focus on the fact that we can put hard work into something and actually get somewhere with it. But we should also try and build society in such a way that allows that to continue. Yeah, because I mean, I'm sure someone looks at me and thinks I'm an immigrant who came mm -hmm. to America. Um, I, and by the way, I didn't come by choice. I came when yeah. I was nine years old, right? Basically, imagine DACA, right? I'm yeah. a kid who came at nine. I had no choice. I grew up here. I know no other life except my American life. And I succeeded. With that said, you know, I didn't take someone's place. Like, mm -hmm. I think that the mindset yeah. is somehow I took your place, right? Some privileged person who grew up here, was born here, raised here. I didn't take your place. I worked even harder because I had to. I had to overcome the fact in every single place that I've been that I was a woman. I've had mm -hmm. to overcome that I was a minority. I had to go the extra step to explain how to pronounce my name. I had to go the extra step to explain my culture, why my food is the way it is, why I pronounce things differently, why I don't understand certain sayings right, yeah. <laughs> that I always get wrong. I've always had to go the extra step. And, and it, I'm not unique in that way, right? Every Every minority that I've ever right. encountered has had to take that extra step. But it's that those extra steps one by one make you more determined, make you work harder, make you realize that nothing is given you have to take or mm -hmm. you have to work hard at it. And I'm never taking someone else's place. I don't want to live in a world where I have to take someone's place for something. I want us all to do better, right? right. I want... I want to, I, I mentor a lot now, I mentor a lot of women, a, a lot of small business people, a lot of women that I know who I look at and I'm like, God, this person can be just so much more. And I try really hard to get them up there because for me, it's not about me or them. It's about us. Right. Right. I want them to succeed as much as I want to succeed on my own. So. You mentioned early on, we talked about this a little earlier about being a, a lifelong learner and coming from the, the world that I'm coming from, understanding that AI, I'm using the term loosely, but AI has been kind of in play for some time. Automation has been around for decades and it's only growing. The economies of the world are changing significantly. The type of work that we're going to do is going to be changing significantly. Mm -hmm. So within the next 10 years, perhaps 6 million truckers in the U.S. are going to lose their jobs because uh, you'll have self-piloted automated trucks that will be driving at least the majority of the rural routes before they get into cities. So now you've got six million truckers who are mostly men out of work. There's other 
jobs and functions that many people have today that will be gone. And as a whole, we haven't necessarily retrained or found a way to actually find replacements for that work. Some people believe that there will be new jobs will be created by some of these evolutions. I'm not necessarily of that same mindset because the goal is not necessarily to create new jobs for this machine. The goal is efficiency. Mm -hmm. And so in that context, what do you think that people should be doing to be lifelong learners? Like how do we get ourselves, our children, thinking about a world that we can't even picture 10, 15 years out? Well, I think one is stop living in denial, right? The, the issue isn't gonna go away. And I think um, there's a couple of things that we have as humans that um, obviously make us different, right? Mm -hmm. This idea of thought processes, the social emotional learning, the compassion, um, being human, right? But I think if we deny that that future is there, and just continue on the path that we are, every single person has to go to college, you have to have a college degree, you have to be thousands and thousands of dollars in debt in order to go to college. You know, maybe there's a, the other, other countries have done this where certain people go to college and mm -hmm. other people go into vocation, right. right? And that's okay. I used to absolutely be of the mindset that everyone had to go to college, right? And mm -hmm. whenever we talked about, you know, school and, oh, oh well, wait a minute, yeah, if you could choose to go to college, you should absolutely, if you can, you should go to college. I don't necessarily think that's the case anymore, right? right? I think that there's a lot of vocations out there that are really good and really powerful and they can do great work. And more importantly, you're not gonna be hundreds and thousands of dollars in debt right, getting right. that degree and getting out of college and not having a job. I think so one, not living in denial, two, talking about and understanding what kind of world we can live in and, and different occupations that we can undertake. And I think three, you know, <laughs> taking a page from kids, right? They envision the world they want to live in, mm -hmm. right? We can't envision that world. I was at, uh, at South by Southwest EDU. I went to one of the sessions where it was um, high school kids and they were um, pitching businesses. And there was this one group that was pitching um, a, a belt for blind people so that they wouldn't veer anymore when they walked across the street, right? It's anti-veering technology wow. where apparently blind people can't walk a straight line for too long, they veer. And that's caused so many accidents and all these things. And these kids came up with this product that I was like, wow, you, you're in high school, right? Mm -hmm. And they've come up with this really patent pending product that can make sure that uh, people don't veer anymore. Right. And when I think about them, like, I didn't know that was an issue, right? These people are coming up with solutions to problems that we don't even think exist. Mm -hmm. um, and I believe you take out a page, you take a page out of these kids' books, they will figure it out. They will. And all our job is to arm them with as much information as possible about the world around them, right? Right. So, I mean, it almost begs a question, like how can we create a better environment and ecosystem for them to be able to be exposed to those things to try and test and learn and fail? Creativity, curiosity, I mean, that's, that's the, like I said, that's the world I want to live in. I want to live in a world where kids are curious because mm -hmm. curiosity is the ultimate, to me, the ultimate solution to the world's problems, right? If you don't even know there's a problem, you can't solve it. Curious kids can figure out that there's problems out there and they can go out and fix them. There's a young, I think he's 23, and I sadly can't remember his name right now, but I listen to Joe Rogan's podcast a lot, which I think is a fantastic example of just talking to people of different walks of life and and you know meeting them as humans. But this guy who's 
22 or 23 now, he has been working for a few years on this technology for cleaning up the floating garbage in the oceans. And they've had a few really successful proof of concepts because there's huge patches of garbage that are floating in the Pacific and mm -hmm. the Atlantic and whatnot. Yeah. And at 23, he's managed to figure out with technology that we have available today, a way to actually clean that up within, I think he was projecting five or 10 years, right? If he could <laughs> yeah. get enough money behind it. So first of all, I knew this was a problem. I did right. not know that these islands of garbage were as you know, large as some European yeah. countries. The extent of the problem. <clears throat> the extent yeah. of the problem. So now this guy at 23, and presumably he was much younger when he started, recognizes the extent of the problem, realizes that something can be done about it with today's technology and isn't just sitting around twiddling his thumbs and is now out there doing something about it. Like that is just, I, I found that that was just so incredible. And there's thousands of stories of, of, of young people doing that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, people talk about the millennials and, and I talk about the millennials, right? Um, and <laughs> I laugh because millennials are hard to manage as a, uh, as a, uh, as a group uh, from a managerial perspective, from a leadership perspective. But I gotta tell you, man, People worry about the future. People worry about um, where we're going mm -hmm. because they think, oh, millennials are that generation of people who, um, you know, got a participation trophy. I, I have to say I'm not so worried. I'm not as worried about the future as other people are because I believe that not only the millennials but Gen X or Gen Zs and the new, you know, the really little kids – they all will find the answers because the one thing, unless baby boomers and Gen Xers get involved, the one thing they have is um, more global outlook. Mm -hmm. And until we screw them up, <laughs> right. they are the people that I have faith in can um, see the world in a different, a more enlightened way. And so I'm almost waiting for our generation to pass the baton to them and be like, oh God, can you please fix what we've screwed isn't that, up? Isn't that weird though to be saying that, because I think every generation is thinking that it's the generation that is about to change things. My entire life, I'm like, I'm of the generation that's gonna help change things. And I realize we're actually kind of passing down a shitty bill of goods to the next one in a way. But at the same time, we've done things like the things you're doing right now to foster more representation, diversity in books, inevitably turns into some young Korean girl in California taking a chance on herself to go and try this crazy business idea that changes the world. Yep. All because she saw herself in that position, for yeah. example. Yeah. So I'm an eternal optimist, <laughs> but also cognizant of just how many batshit crazy things we're doing at the same time yeah. um, with this world. I, I want to kind of come back to the whole diversity thing for a second because it ties into schooling and creating the future. I interviewed Pradeep Singh Nagra uh, a few months ago. So his story is he was actually a flyweight boxer or lightweight boxer in Canada. He was on his way for an Olympic qualifier. In one of his bouts, the commission in Ontario, uh, Canada, would not allow him to box because, I mean, he was a turbaned, bearded Sikh man. So they were saying there's no beards allowed in boxing. As he showed up, they didn't allow him to fight. So it basically has turned into almost 20 years of fighting various commissions for the right to be able to box with a beard, when really it wasn't just about the beard, it was basically about Equality. what he represented. Yeah. So fast forward, last year, a Hollywood film called Tiger came out, and it's got uh, Prem Singh starring um, Pradeep, and Mickey Rourke is his trainer in there. 
and it's set in the US instead of being set in Canada, so they took some creative license. But I met with Pradeep, and he is an equity officer with the Toronto District School Board. And it was really interesting talking to him because this film is made about him. He's the protagonist in it. It's the first time that a Hollywood movie has been made with a Sikh man playing himself in the movie as the lead, and on top of that, not having a ghettoized Indian accent. So when he was actually in the theaters and going around schools, because they're showing it around different schools, what he found actually really exciting is for a lot of kids, it was like the first time they've seen someone like him on screen. And that too, not in a ghettoized way. It's the first time that that movie is playing alongside with Marvel movies and other things in the theaters. So when people walk out of some other Hollywood blockbuster, they see the poster of this bearded Sikh man up there and they're like, okay, what is this about? And there's a couple of things that Pradeep said that really struck me. One, many of us have grown up always finding a way to empathize at a human level with white characters, for example. Even if it's the best story in the world, the character is often white. So we're able to connect with that person on a human level. But if you've never seen a brown-skinned person or a black-skinned person or someone who's got some sort of physical disability or a mental illness or whatever that is, if you can't empathize with them because of what's different about them, then we still haven't moved far enough. Mm -hmm. So him in doing this film, that was part of his mission. But the other thing he told me that was really interesting, tying back to this whole thing about education, he believes we need to overhaul school systems and we can do it If we have the political will, we can do it very quickly and we can make a change within a generation, within less. Because if you start and change the curriculum in kindergarten and then next year you change the the curriculum for grade one and two and three, et cetera, et cetera, within 12, 13 years, you've got an entire wave of kids moving through that system who have been exposed to new ways of thinking, new ideas and whatnot. And within 13 years, you, you could be putting out an entirely new generation of kids from that. And so coming back to what you're talking about, being able to create a climate where these future generations can do what they need to do to make this world even better than we've made it, it's actually not that hard if we just recognize that we need to work together on it. But it's not a huge... <laughs> it's funny. I, I kind of disagree with him only in the sense that as much as I, I think in America, it's much harder. And I think I'd like to think it was easier. And I'd like to think that um, you know, we could change curriculum. But we tried that, right? We tried that with Common Core a little bit. A Common Core standard was meant to be a, um, a nationwide standard, right, where we would raise the bar of learning a little bit more and teach more fundamentals so that everybody was on the same page. And it's interesting how, what a backlash Common Core got in America. Um, hmm. We were talking about, for example, the math Common Core, right? In normal, you would have like 11 plus 11. You're like, oh, easy, you know, 22. And in the way Common Core, you 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 know take a one, and you, you, there's just a whole like little exercise around it versus just right. giving the answer like we did when we were kids, and all these parents had this backlash against it because they're like, well, we don't understand it, and so we can't teach it to our kids. You know, they're making it way more complicated for no reason whatsoever. It's not about the answer; it's about the the process of getting that answer. And I had this conversation with my husband about it because he's a math guy. And he said, you know, it's interesting because people push back on Common Core so much because they don't understand it. And the, the, the problem is, is you're not understanding the fundamentals of it. So mm. kids are growing up like you, he met me, um, who are still counting on their fingers, because I do. And it's because I never really understood the fundamentals of math because I learned shortcuts, right? I spent mm-hmm. my entire life learning math shortcuts. 
And I spend now my entire adulthood being shitty at math, right? And instead, if we were to embrace Common Core the way everyone else in the world learns math, then we would be in a better place. But what, what's happening in America is there's this backlash against learning science and math the same way the rest of the world learns it, right? Common Core has been pulled from so many states now. They want to go back to, I don't want to teach evolution, and I want to teach more religious-based values in schools, and I want to you know, push back on um, banning certain texts from schools and banning certain books. And we're almost going backwards in the, that, and that's why I said, I hope we don't screw up our kids. We're almost going backwards in a way to, to try not to teach some of the things that give us our fundamentals, right? On right. the math and science front. I think it's harder in America to overhaul the education system than people think. I think what's happening is now with charter schools and, mm -hmm. you know, um, you know, STEM schools and, you know, uh, th those types of schools. I think what's, what's interesting about them is we're almost going to a place where there are going to be a whole bunch of schools that are doing it right. They're going to do it really well. They're going to, you know, teach kids about science and math and, you know, STEM stuff. And then there are going to be a bunch of schools. And I'm not going to say they're doing it wrong because I don't think they are. They're just different, right? Mm -hmm. They're going to be doing it in a way where the, the emphasis is on, you know, maybe religious-based learning, maybe not so much um, science as a real fact, but as an opinion. I put it in quote, unquote, because mm. science is not an opinion. It's fact, sure. but yeah, yeah. sure. Mm. Um, and what I'm worried about is this idea that there isn't going to be a level playing field. We're heading into a place where it's going to be different learning. I worry that America's too big to, you know, especially with Betsy DeVos as our mm. Secretary of Education. Yeah. <laughs> like it's, you know, she's, she's pulling us back, right, from where we were. We were doing really great with Arne Duncan and some others. Right. We, were, we were trying to get on a path and there's a lot of pushback. So I, I don't agree with him in the sense that it's, it's easier. I wish it were that easy. I wish we could take first kindergarten, right. first grade, change the curriculum. I think we've tried a little bit in America. I think we, you know, look, at the end of the day, you're going to push the limit to where we are and there's going to be change. Yeah, and let, let me qualify, like, so I'm not misrepresenting what Pradeep was saying. I, I don't think he was specifically applying that thinking to America as a whole, but within an individual school board and the way the districts, uh, the way things are managed in, in Canada is different than yeah. here. And it's also, we're not, like, the U.S. has over 16,000 individual school districts, right? It's just a massive beast to, to corral. In Canada, it's not quite the same thing, but we're also seeing... Uh, like you know, in Ontario, where where I live, we're seeing a huge erosion of and sort of step backwards in some ways of thinking in education. For example, in Ontario, Canada, in 2015, I believe it was, a new sex ed curriculum was rolled out in which they talked about consent. They talked about people who are transgender. They talked about some things that are these are not new. These things have always been around, but yeah. now they're finally in the curriculum. So last year, this new government in, a, in Ontario, Canada, at a provincial level, the guy who's running things there, Doug Ford, he may as well be Canada's Trump. Uh, you know, so <laughs> anyways, he's actually, without really much public consultation, they rolled back to the 2008 curriculum that was in place before 2015. So things like consent don't even show up anymore because there are certain groups of people that were vocal. We don't want our kids learning about some of this stuff. So I, I think these dynamics play out everywhere, but in America with the 16,000 school districts and all of these different things at play, what do you believe is behind this pushback against whether it's science or fundamentals in math? Is it because 
the educators, the teachers, the schools themselves buy that? Or do you believe that there's other players kind of at play that are trying to force certain agendas? I think it's a little bit of both. I think it's people, um, there's definitely other players trying to push agendas. Um, I also think it's parents not understanding. It's teachers pushing back at the fact that it's a new learning system. Um, I think there's a lot. I mean, it's so complicated. And I don't believe, you know, I'm not a fan of Betsy DeVos, but I don't think any secretary of education can fix the problem right away. Mm -hmm. um, I think we have to pull together some fundamentals to start. And I think the political landscape of America is just making it harder and harder to teach the next generation of kids. Um, but, you know, maybe we figure it out in a different way, right? I, I, and that's why I say I'm so excited for the next generation. Mm -hmm. I feel like they're going to figure it out. What was um, really interesting the other day caught me off guard. So my wife had picked up some uh, Pokemon cards for the kids and I never played Pokemon as a kid. I'd know nothing yeah, about either. it. But for whatever reason, like in junior kindergarten right now, with this circle of friends of my son's, like it's kind of all the rage. So he got some Pokemon cards. So like, Daddy, can you teach me how to play Pokemon? I'm like, I don't know how to play Pokemon, right? Like I can sit down with you. He's like, can we put on a video on YouTube yes. and then I'll learn how to, how, to, how to play Pokemon cards? In my head, I'm thinking, okay, no more screen time. But then I was like, wait a second. At four, you've just connected this idea of watching a video on the internet to Learn learning, not entertainment, but learning. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, that is such a stretch for many executives in Fortune 500 companies mm -hmm. to even I, I, to understand that simple concept. And you at four have already connected mm -hmm. that. And so I think that the democratization and pervasiveness of technology is opening up new avenues for learning. It is. And so... 100%, by the way. I yeah. Mean, the, like, my niece loves to cook and she watches some... Rosanna Prezzetto, I don't know what her name okay. is, but it's all about like, oh, I'm going to bake and learn to cook with her. Mm -hmm. And she watches these cooking videos and so that she can learn how to cook and bake as opposed to just literally, you know, like saying, mommy, teach me how to cook, teach me how to right. bake. It's, they, they absolutely learn how to do things. Do you think that these ways of learning and these technologies are going to play a bigger role? I do. I mean, they already do in the classroom, right? I mean, uh, technology in the classroom is getting bigger and bigger. Ed tech is getting to be billions of dollars of business. People are investing so much in ed tech. And, and that's why I think that education will be solved. It's just going to take a lot of time. But I think ed tech is going to be um, a huge component of that. I'm, <clears throat> one of the things that's uh, unique about America, many countries have got, at least on some dimensions, more robust school systems and education, the number of mathematicians and scientists and physicists and people who are engineers and doctors being churned out of China or India or whatnot are huge. And if some of that fundamental capability is eroded out of America, I think it's going to put America at a real disadvantage. But at the same time, many of the innovations that seem to happen, whether it's in technology or in social media or entrepreneurship or microfinancing or whatever they are, there's something uniquely innovative about America and yep. its culture of risk-taking and whatnot, where risk-taking isn't necessarily as encouraged in other places, yep. or if it is at all, it's overall the, the country might be more conservative in terms of access to funding, in access to money, access to resources. So it would be a shame in one way to take away the fundamental tools of education from some kids 
when you still have an environment of innovation. So if we can find a way to actually give these tools to everybody and give them somewhat of an equal playing field, I find kids are so damn resourceful and inspired and they can do so many incredible things if they just have the means available to them. They do. And I, and I, I agree with you. I mean, look, I love being an American. I have my days where I'm embarrassed by, you know, our politics and embarrassed by our government, but everybody does, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I wouldn't trade it for anything. I mean, we came to America, we passed the citizenship test and, and, you know, I remember the day I became a citizen, you know, I still to this day cry when I hear the national anthem, love the Pledge of Allegiance. I mean, I'm not, I don't, I don't consider myself a super patriot, but I do love America. And why? Because I believe it is truly the land of opportunity. And I do believe that this is the place where so many ideas come to fruition. And it's because of the people. People joke about, you know, the American tourist, right, that goes to different countries and they're an embarrassment to who we are. I gotta tell you, we're the friendliest country imaginable when you come here, right? When, when a foreigner comes to America, when not necessarily immigrant, but when a tourist comes to America, we open our arms to that tourist, right? Mm -hmm. we, you go to a restaurant, the waitress is very kind. You ask directions on the street, someone will help you. And if you've gone to other countries, you realize people aren't as kind in other countries, right? Mm -hmm. There is something about the American dream and, and it's all about its people. And as much as we have gotten a bad rep in, um, and, and so many people in the South get you know, a bad reputation with the media and whoever, I tell you that people here are inherently good. Mm -hmm. And this whole idea that we are risk takers, we do better, we, you know, when some terrible tragedy happens in the world, guess what? Americans donate. We pull out money from our pocket and we donate. We wanna help, we wanna be there. I believe that if you could get the politics out of America and its people, you would find that there's a lot of hope mm -hmm. and there's a lot um, that we can do together. Right. Um, I just think that, you know, the powers that be, whoever they are, want to divide us. And that has its consequences in business, in politics, in education, in our daily lives, um, in economics. But, uh, you know, I truly, like, I, I'm a cautious optimistic, but I do believe in the power of people. And mm -hmm. so when you talk about how there's an education system and, and, and all of these, like, you know, people in India and China and um, Europe and the Middle East, all doing really well on the education front, I still believe, even if we're behind in education, even if we're behind in technology, we seem to be able to figure out how to make the best things, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? right? Google, Apple, ev everything. I mean, there's, there's so much that we do here, social media, even though I don't want to necessarily say that's a good thing, but it's all invented here. Right. We're not so bad. What, what, is, what is interesting, and I think the South by Southwest EU was kind of a reminder for me, what you see of America from the outside through the media is not that it's not true or real, but it is not at all the whole story. No. It is one side of a, a much bigger, more complicated picture. At the same time, I, I think that there's also this, many countries have huge contributions to make and they go about it in their own different way. I think that America is an incredible place. It's one of many. I'm, you know, I often am pretty critical of, you know, of Canada where I've grown up. It's got a lot of the inner workings that are similar to European countries and similar to America and whatnot. It's probably a little bit more apologetic than it perhaps should be, whereas America's <laughs> like, 
to hell with you, I'm just going to do what I'm going to do and I'm not going to apologize for it. Yeah. We seem to be saying sorry about everything Oh, I know. That's why I appreciate the Canadians because I feel like internally I might be a Canadian. <laughs> apologize for everything. The thing is, though, I think we need to figure out within countries, but as well as a global community, how we best collaborate too. Because I think that there's a certain American entrepreneurial spirit and sense of innovation and adventure that is unique and has definitely taken hold. America as a, I'm kind of using this term loosely, but like in terms of its culturally imperial footprint is undeniable. Like it's everywhere. Like American music, American culture is everywhere. You know, a lot of that's to be said for California as a state, for example, right? In terms of what it's been able to export and whatnot. But at the same time, I think that the one thing that other other countries, other societies are kind of facing is like, we shouldn't be looking to validation from anyone to kind of recognize our own. What you were talking about earlier with you know, your, your mom having henna or having her nose ring and whatnot. So I had those types of experiences, you know, maybe not that many that I can remember, but I'd had experiences like that growing up. And I find that unless we feel validated by some bigger authority that we've put in that place. Oh, yeah, cultural appropriation. Yeah, yeah. in, in this case, <laughs> I, I'm not a huge fan of ever using the, the term unless it really fits like this whole white supremacy thing. But in a sense, unless American or white European societies acknowledge something, we tend not to take ourselves seriously. Oh, yeah. on it. That's part of the reason why I think hip hop has gotten as far as it's gotten in of its course. sort of um, cultural dominance. Not because on its own the art form isn't incredible, but at the end of the day, it's mostly suburban white kids that are buying. Right, the it's music. the acceptance by um, the majority. Well, it's the acceptance by the majority of one or two countries that, for whatever reason, the rest of the world puts in a pedestal. Right. Yes. Like, I mean, what we see. I, I used to think this was the funniest thing ever. I've been a part of so many Indian organizations that where the CEO is a white man. Really? The entire body is Indian and the CEO is white. I've seen this in some startups. I've seen it in a few, you know, nonprofit organizations. And I always laugh because I'm like, huh, we tend to idolize and put on a pedestal, you know, Americans or British or Mm -hmm. whoever it is, white senior executives as some kind of validation for Mm -hmm. whatever work we're doing, right? It is a thing that we're combating and, um, you know, we're we're like trying to um, question a little bit more, but you're 100% right. I mean, until the majority, and I say majority because, you know, we're still minorities, right? All Mm -hmm. these minorities, until the majority accepts something, it's not valid or it isn't, um, it isn't acceptable, right? right? And so, you know, now with, you know, even I me mean, personally, my own culture, that's what happened, right? It, the, the, until henna and nose rings and tattoos and all that stuff became popular, I was embarrassed by it, mm-hmm. right? As a kid, I was embarrassed by it. Now I appreciate it. Now I have no problem. I mean, you guys, my name even, you know, it was such a thing. My name was such a thing that I would just be so embarrassed by. People couldn't pronounce it. And I would, you know, and even to this day, when I walk up to someone, I say my name is Sangita. Mm-hmm. So that they can phonetically hear me say Sangita. My name is Sangita. Mm-hmm. It's the sun, right? In yeah. the name, Sangita, not Sangita. But immediately if I say, hi, my name is Sangita, what? Yeah, yep. They're not hearing it. And so I have to get the validation from the majority, you know, in order to feel acceptance. And it's a daily struggle. 
and it's a daily learning opportunity for me, right? As it is for everybody else. You know, I, I jokingly said to someone the other day when they were like, oh, my daughter can pronounce your name. I said, oh, that's awesome, Sangeeta. And she's like, yeah. And I said, you know, it's actually Sangeeta. And she's like, wait, what? I've known you for two years. I didn't <laughs> know that was your name. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's, I'm constantly pushing myself to be better for that reason and teach my girls lessons on how they can be better. And there's so much to learn. I mean, I for sure don't have all the answers. And I think that's what I, I want to continue to learn from all these amazing people around me. Like I was telling someone the other day, I was like, I love to surround myself with people smarter than I am right? so that I can learn from them because there's always something to be learned from, right? There's always someone I can learn something from. And I think that's the, that's the key, right? Stop surrounding yourself with people who aren't going to teach you something. Mm -hmm. Move on from them. Right. I, I feel like this conversation, there's so much more here. I'm curious, like, what are you most excited about what you've got on deck for the next year? Like, what are the things that when you look back at this year, you're like, yeah, I did that. We made a difference here. What's on your plate? Um, so the beginning of this year in February, we donated our Skyberry product that LaVar and I've been working on for the last nine years to Reading is Fundamental. It's a nonprofit that provides books for ownership for kids who can't afford books. The full circle story is that I was a RIF kid. My husband was a RIF kid. We both got books from Reading is Fundamental um, when we were kids, and they helped me become a reader. Mm. And so, you know, 20 years later, 40 years later, I am donating the product that we worked on to Reading is Fundamental so that they can now, um, you know, really give more children books and access to all the stuff that we created. So I'm very proud of that. In terms of the future, LeVar and I are working on more kids' content that I think will be uh, amazing for kids to kind of um, explore the world around them. From a personal standpoint, uh, I'm kind of dedicating this year to uh, learning a little more about how to be better uh, when it comes to leadership and um, confidence in myself. Uh, I talked to um, uh, someone the other day about this. You know, to me, it's really every year I, I try to do something different, right? Mm -hmm. When I turned 42, I remember I read 42 books that year. That was my goal. I'm going to read 42 new books. This year, it's really about not the quantity, but the quality of content that sure. I um, pull in. And uh, I really want to learn to be um, a better person. What are you reading right now? I'm actually reading uh, Becoming, Michelle Obama's Becoming. Okay. I've, it's taking me a while because I, I, uh, I read it. I started it a while ago, but I'm, I'm absorbing every chapter, I feel like. And uh, my next book is Daring Greatly. Okay. It was like a little bit of a smack upside the head in watching LeVar that day at the panel at South by Southwest. I think someone had asked a question about you know, getting kids to read more, and he, his response was something along the lines of that you just have to model that behavior that his mother was always reading. There couldn't be a time where she wasn't reading. So, you know, make time where your kids can actually see you reading a book. And I remember going back and telling my wife, hey, we need to do more of this. We need to be reading in front of the kids because the kids love reading. We read with them. We read yes. their books. But they're not seeing us reading our own books for our own enjoyment. And if we're reading, it's when they're, like, you know, in bed or whatever. Yeah. After fourth or fifth grade, kids stop reading. 
they start I, reading I as much it, yeah. because they don't see that behavior in their parents. It was actually really amazing. So I've, I've opened Sapiens, I've been reading through it slowly, it's been kind of a stop-start process in the middle of everything else. But the other day I was uh, with the kids at home and we had like, I don't know, an hour and a half. And I'm like, okay, daddy's gonna read. So I sat down on the couch. I didn't say, you guys, you guys can do whatever you want. I sat down on the couch, cracked Sapiens back open. I didn't say anything. My daughter, there's a book that's been sitting, um, we've got like a bunch of our books and then some kids' books on this little shelf. And there's a book I had bought her. And it interestingly has a, you know, a, a brown kid. Her name is Anjali, who's the lead in this character. And yep. it's, she's fighting all these serpents and demons trying to save her family. So it's this crazy nice. adventure. And I bought that book specifically because it's an Indian girl that's a little bit older than her in this crazy adventure. So I sit down, and it, not even five minutes passes. I see her just quietly go and grab that book, sit down on the other couch, and now she's reading it. Now my son's like just kind of looking around. The Roomba is like vacuuming away, and he's like, I got nothing to do. He goes upstairs, he grabs one of his Transformers books, and he sits down. Oh. Not a word was said, but they went a full like 15, 20 minutes just reading, and then I'm looking up thinking, all that I had to do was just start reading in front of them. Yep, model that behavior. It was really quite remarkable. because it, it really is. And it's funny, my niece thinks that I read all the time. I am synonymous with books for her. Hmm. And she even says to me all the time, you should be a teacher. You should be a teacher because you love books. And I think about it, I'm like, how does, why does she, like she thinks of me as that person who reads all the time and, it, it, and she loves it. We talk about stories together. Mm. We talk about storytelling. She writes the most amazing little stories and yeah. it's because that's the behavior I've modeled for her and she loves it. I think uh, my daughter's kind of like that too. I'm, I'm guilty of this. Like if I learn a little bit, I want to start applying it and creating something with it. And my daughter... She loves to read, but even more than that, she loves to create books and write books and little magazines and stuff. We've got a pile of maybe a hundred plus books yeah, at home. I love that. All individual stories that are disconnected with each other, but she'll illustrate in them, she'll write them, and they're like nuanced and they're witty and there's all of these different things yeah. that are happening in there. And I find that just so exciting because I'm like, you actually love creating something and you're going to create it and now you're going to put it out there in the world for someone else to get enjoyment from that yep. like that's just brilliant it is i used to write all the time when i was a kid i wrote all these stories and i think that has shaped um, so much of who i am i am a consumer of inspiring content um i, I don't know if you've ever read um george R. R. martin's song of fire and ice no, you know, game of thrones huge fan um, but he says something in one of the books um, that I have taken and like live this, and it's that something to the effect of a man who reads has lived a thousand lives. Hmm. A man who doesn't read has only lived one. And it is true. I feel like every book that I've ever read, fiction included, and I love fiction for that reason, I have lived and in their shoes and in their life for the time that I've read that book, mm. right? I have been in their shoes, the decisions they make, I've understood them, I've understood the, the feelings behind them, and that lets me em empathize with that person. Right. The next book I read, I get to live that person's life and I get to empathize with them. The next book I read, I get to live their life. And a, a reader lives a thousand lives before he dies, right? Mm -hmm. A person who never reads only gets to live theirs. They get to live that one life. They get to empathize with that one person, and that's them. Right. And so, you know, the one thing I will say, and I, I, I really do want people to hear this, that every time you open a book, you're going to learn to empathize with someone. Mm. 
Mm, and right. um, I think that's the key to um, our existence and humanity in general, right? We can't, right. we can't get to know each other unless we hear each other. And if you're not open to hearing someone sit next to you and talk to you, then read something that's going to help explain where they came from and what they're all about. What I think is interesting about what you just said there, oftentimes a movie is made about a book or series and people will complain it wasn't as good as a book. Never is. Um, <laughs> it's, rarely, it's rarely the case that it's as good or better. And I was thinking for years, what is the difference? And I kind of came to this realization that what separates a book from a film or TV show, ignore the fact that you can't go into as much detail in a two-hour movie, for example, and you can't maybe build characters as much, or production budgets don't allow you to have that fifth dragon scene, for example. If you even ignore the logistics of it, you're consuming this story through the perspective of someone else who tried to put this out into the world, and their interpretation may have been different from yours. But when you're reading a book, you are internalizing everything yourself. You're, I think you're internalizing you're it. it too. Yeah, imagining, imagining it, too. it, and then you're projecting that imagination out in the way that you see it. And there are no two people, however similar they could be, are ever going to see it in exactly the same way. And so I, as much as I'm a big fan of consuming you know, video and all these other pieces of content, I still believe there's something unique about reading. Yeah, in books particular. and audio, right? Like yeah. right now, someone's listening to this podcast, they have no idea what my facial expressions are. They don't know, you know what I look like. They don't know any of that. So they're going to listen to the words and they're going to internalize those words and they're going to hear mm -hmm. them. And I think there's something to podcasts and books, especially for kids, because they don't come with any preconceived notions. They just get to hear and see and read as opposed to creating these visuals. Right. So true. Uh, with that, Sangeeta, thank you so much for your time today. I'm, I'm really glad we got to make this happen. <laughs> Thanks. I feel so bad. I think I talked so much. Oh, no. That's, it's a podcast. That's, that's what it's about. So I, I hope that we can kind of reconnect at some point in the future. And I'm actually excited that you and, and LeVar are doing what you do because now I can go home and tell my kids that there's this Indian woman in America and there's this guy that was daddy's childhood hero who are doing this thing to make the world better so that you can see yourself in these books. There you go. Can I do a shout out to my nieces? Absolutely. Saya and Leia, I love you guys. And this is all for you. Thank you so much. That is a wrap. Thank you. So, if you've listened till this point in the episode, I can only assume one of two things. You either A, really dig this podcast, or B, you started playing the podcast and left the room and totally forgot it was even playing, and right now I'm just talking to nobody. So, if you are digging this podcast, there's many ways that you can support it. You can definitely subscribe in your app of choice. We're on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, in TuneIn iHeartRadio, Spotify, and for all the folks around the world, we're on Ruckus Avenue Radio. You can also follow us on social media. On Instagram, we're at Awoken Word Podcast. On Twitter, as at Awoken Word. We also have a Facebook page under Awoken Word Podcast. Hey, if you've got an idea for a guest or a conversation or a topic that you'd like to see or hear touched on, please reach out. Let us know. Feel free to share some of these ideas or bring up some of these ideas in your own podcast. If you're hanging out with friends or family, maybe over beers or coffee or a smoothie, who am I to judge? If you're hanging out with someone and something comes to mind, tell them about this podcast. Tell them this is where you heard it. 
tell your family, tell your friends, tell your coworkers, tell your great grandma, tell that weird naked guy who hangs out on his balcony on the building across the street from you all the time. We appreciate the support of each and every one of you. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until the next episode of Awoken Word, peace out.